0: It is a new year and a new decade and all that good stuff, so we're going to start a brand new series today. And the year and the series have the same title, 2020. Did you think things would look different in 2020? Like we'd have flying cars by now, or, you know, teleportation would be a thing, or starships, or whatever. Anyway, uh, you would think, but here we are. Things aren't that much different than they were that long ago. Uh, so here we are, 2020, and we're talking about vision. So, this series is all about vision. So, we have three things here the year, and then the series title is based on 2020 vision. We're going to talk about what it means to have perfect vision for, first of all, for our church. So, this is going to kind of be sort of what we aim to be in the community, the kind of church that we want to be. We'll take a look at that over the next several weeks, and then we'll apply those same principles to our lives how we can apply the same sort of main idea each week to personally, how we can be the kind of people that Jesus wants us to be as well. So the series is about vision in general in that way, but we're going to get our um, ideas every week, our main thoughts every week, from a very specific vision that's in the Bible. And it's John's vision, or what you might call John's revelation. So we're gonna start this brand new year by looking at the book of Revelation we're going to go there. Now, so Revelation, you hear that and you're like, oh wow, because there's a lot of things there, a lot of imagery, a lot of prophecy, a lot of controversy, a lot of discussion around this book, but we're going to look at a very specific portion of it. We're just going to focus on the first three chapters of the book of Revelation um, to really get this idea of vision for our church and hopefully for your life. So we're not going to get into any of that really out there kind of stuff. Maybe one day I will... You know, like really get the strength to go through it. We did it with our youth group years ago. Um, I, I gave them a list of. We're going to go through a book of the Bible on Sunday night, kind of verse by verse, and all 66 options, what do you want to do? Of course, they picked Revelation. I'm like, what have I done? So I've done that, been there, done that, so we're not going to do that, but we are going to focus on the first three chapters of John's vision, of John's Revelation, and see how we can apply those principles that he sees in his message to our church and our lives. So what I want to do today, now today's message kind of came at last minute. So I had something else ready to go for today. I have a certain number of weeks I'm trying to get all this done in. And so, of course, Thursday afternoon, I'm kind of working on that. And I'm just like, this is going in a very different direction than what I've got here. And so I kind of had to scrap or really push back a week what was already ready to go. And so if this is like a swing and a miss, that's why. Basically, this is like two days worth of work here. So uh, I think it'll be good. So again, I think God did that on purpose. He knew who was gonna be here. He knew who was gonna be listening, maybe online later on for a specific reason. So we're gonna cover some things I hope that'll be helpful for us as we kick off this new series. What we're gonna do today is look at the author of the book of Revelation, the writer, his name is John. We're gonna look specifically at two things that are very important to him And this vision that he has and how we can apply it to our lives. Two main things we want to look at. The first main thought that we want to focus on with John is that this important fact, John had a relationship with Jesus. I want to focus really three things about that. So John had a personal relationship with Jesus. Now we use that term even today, you know, you can have a personal relationship with Jesus and you can, you should personally have a faith journey, a faith walk, that relationship with Christ. But John like literally had a friendship with Jesus. He was best buds really with Jesus. He followed him around everywhere for over three years. He was physically, literally friends with Jesus. It was a personal relationship that he had. And so John wanted to make it very clear in some of his writings. So John wrote the Gospel of John and then the vision, the revelation that we're going to look at here the next few weeks. And also three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which he wrote to some of the churches that he had pastored. That'll be kind of what our focus is in this series moving forward. But he wanted to make it very clear that he did have a personal relationship with Jesus, because he's writing this later in his life, he's writing Revelation at around probably age ninety, is what we what we believe, and uh, so he wants to make very clear in his writings, hey, this guy that you've probably heard a lot about, this guy named Jesus that you've probably read a lot about, this he, there's a lot said about him, there's a lot circulating about him. I want you to know from personal firsthand experience what Jesus said and did. So he in First John chapter one, he starts out this his this letter to the church like this. He says, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life, He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. So to John, Jesus was many things. He was teacher, he was leader, he was Messiah, he was God in flesh, but really at the core, the thing that affected John the most was that Jesus was his personal friend. His personal friend. And we know that John was one of the 12 disciples, the 12 original apostles, and so we know think about that for a second. So as John is pastoring later in life, imagine the credibility this guy has when talking about Jesus. Like what I'm telling you is not something that I heard from someone who heard from someone who heard, like, no, I was there. I wrote some stuff down so I wouldn't forget about it. Like that he actually said this. I can set the scene for you because I was literally there with him when he performed this miracle. Or when he said this. Or this guy's saying he said that. I'm telling you, he never said that. John has immediate credibility as a minister of the gospel because he was there with Jesus. I wish I had that kind of credibility, but I don't, all right? So I am telling you what I have read and heard, all right? Imagine being in John's shoes. Imagine having that relationship with Jesus. I'm with him, walking with him, hearing him. Like, And we only see a small portion Of what Jesus actually said and did. John was there 24-7, 365. So there's some late night conversations that nobody wrote down that probably would blow your mind that John was there for. That's pretty amazing to consider. So he's one of the 12. But then he's even more intimate of a friend than that. He's one of the inner three of the 12, So there's three guys you read about a lot, Peter, James, and John. James and John are actually brothers. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So these three are kind of the ones that really gravitated closer to Jesus than the others did. Now, they were all close. They all loved him, followed him, believed in him. But these three were like really super close. And they experienced certain things that the other guys did not get to experience. One of which will be interesting as we look at here in a minute is there's an, there's an instance where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, this same John, up on the, this mountain, and they're just kind of hanging out there for a while, and all of a sudden, it's like time just stops. And what they experience is Jesus, like, begins to change. He begins to, like, morph into something. And really what they see is sort of the more eternal nature of Jesus, his glorified self. It's called the transfiguration, and so while he's in sort of this strange, sort of glowing uh, state, uh, they record, the, the gospel writers record that Elijah and Moses join Jesus on top of this mountain and they sort of just hang out together. And Peter, of all people, is like, What is going on? This is amazing. And Peter even says, Hey, Jesus, I have a great idea. Let's just live up here. You know, just. You, me, James and John, Elijah, Mo, let's just hang out and live here on this, you know, pitch some tents, and we'll just camp out. It'd be great. And Jesus like, that's not that's not the point of this. I just want to kind of show you guys who are sort of closer to something that the other guys aren't maybe going to be able to understand or comprehend. So they go back down. It is, they don't live there. They don't do that. But it was something that John experienced. He saw Jesus really in his full uh, glory which is an amazing thing to witness and he sees something similar here in revelation as well so john was one of the 12 one of the inner three and i would say probably the closest of all the disciples to jesus in terms of relationship and i would say that for two reasons one john says it pretty much Uh, now that's a little, it's again, if you're one of the guys to write about Jesus and you're there, you can kind of, and you're the last one to write, like the other dudes are already dead by now. I can pretty much write whatever I want, you know, however I want. And they're not going to say anything about it because he says over and over, John never names himself in his own gospel, but we do get some context clues. He does talk about himself because he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved, And again, the other dudes are already dead and gone. So they can't say, hey, that's not fair. He loved me too. He's like, John's like, boom, outlived you suckers. Deal with it, you know. So he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we can also see from something else that John wrote about himself, the close-knit relationship that John had with Jesus, the personal nature of their relationship. Because when Jesus is on the cross dying, John is the only disciple there. The other ones have run and hid. Even Peter has denied even knowing Jesus at all. John is the only disciple who is recorded as being there watching him die. He has that kind of relationship. And Jesus sees this and does something very interesting. John wrote about it, John 19, verses 26 and 27. So Jesus is on the cross breathing his last breaths, and it says this, when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, there it is, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And John writes, from then on, this disciple, me, took her into his home. So Jesus trusts his widowed mother, because by now Joseph is dead as well. So he trusts the care of his mother with John. He says, John, do me a solid, bro. My mom needs someone to look after her. I picked you. You know why? You're the only one here, so the, you know, the pickings were kind of slim. But in all seriousness, he, he trusts John to that degree to take care of his mother. You don't just do that with just anyone. You don't just say, hey, random person on the street, take care of my widowed mother, right? You don't do that. He had trust in John. They had this kind of relationship. Now, think about that responsibility for a second. That's a big deal. Like, Jesus has asked you to take care of his mom. Don't mess it up. Take care of her. I don't want to have to come back for you early, you know, because I will. Don't do anything, you know. And then also think about, so as personal a relationship as John had with Jesus while Jesus was alive, just think about the late night conversations John may have had with Mary. Think about, like, he prob- he's probably one of the only people ever to know what Jesus was like as a teenager. He's like, okay, Mary, he's gone, okay? He's not coming back for a while. You can dig up the dirt on Jesus. Well, you know, how was he as a teenager? Did he ever rebel? Did he ever, you know, try to cover up anything? So he knows stuff that hardly anyone else knows. And I'm kind of mad at John because he didn't bother to write any of that down. It's like we have the birth and then we have adult There's like 30 years of nothing, and John probably had a lot of great stories from Mary's firsthand experience. Couldn't you have put some of those in there? Like, couldn't you have at least given us an idea of how he was as a kid? Was he a straight-A student? You know, did he sit at the cool kid table? Was he fashionable? Was he a hard worker? You know, did he like, did it just come naturally to him? Did he ever pull pranks on his friends or teachers? Like, what? We don't know that. So John really let us down here a little bit. But John had some of that firsthand knowledge. He had a personal relationship with Jesus. The second part of their relationship, though, is that his relationship grew. It matured. Because, again, we said earlier, John had a brother named James. Jesus gave this dynamic duo a famous nickname. He called them the Sons of Thunder. They should have had a rock band with that kind of name because that would have been a great name. Were the Sons of Thunder. Da, 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 Jesus. You know, that they could have been a great, famous first century rock band. So again, John's letting us down big time here again. Kind of a letdown, John. Sorry, dude. So they had this nickname. Why? Because they were... They, their name was that. I mean, the, how they behaved. They were pretty rough around the edges. Uh, they were, you know, kind of gruff with people at times. There's a couple of instances... Uh, In fact, in Luke chapter 9, they're ministering near Samaria, and the people there are just not believing in Jesus at all. They're just ignoring him. They're not paying attention. They're not putting faith in him. And James and John, they just kind of had it with this crowd, and they're ready to shut the thing down. And so they say, hey, Jesus, let's do this. Would you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy these people because they won't believe in you? Sons of Thunder and apparently lightning too I don't know. So Jesus is like no 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 we're not we're not going to kill people. That's not what we're here to do. Just calm down. That's why they have this nickname Sons of Thunder. And then later on in in Mark chapter 9 Mark writes about a time where they they kind of come to Jesus and kind of tattle. They kind of tell on some people. They're like, hey, Jesus, we just want to let you know. We got your back, Jesus. We got your back. Uh, there were some people that were casting out evil spirits in this town over here, and we stopped them because they're not one of our crew. We just want to let you know. We're looking out for you, Jesus. We got your reputation in mind. We shut that down because they were casting out evil spirits, and they're not one of us. So we said, uh-uh, nope, we're over. Get out of here. Kick them out of town. And Jesus, it says Jesus rebuked them. He's like, hey, listen, if they're not against us, then they're for us. We need as many people on our team as we can get right now. So just because they're not with us 24-7, if they're not against us, just let them do what they're going to do. So he has this reputation, son of thunder, pretty brash, uh, pretty crude, pretty cocky, pretty short-tempered at times. They even have arguments about who's the greatest in the kingdom, who's going to sit at your right hand. Like, John's in the middle of all of this kind of sophomoric nonsense this sort of middle school type of one-upsmanship but yet when you read his writings and I looked this up uh, this week and I counted so it's gonna be fairly accurate in John's gospel in his three letters and in Revelation he talks about love 118 times love everyone love your neighbor love God like love 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 118 times he writes about love so how did this young, cocky, brash, bull-headed, stubborn kid end up writing about love 118 times? Was well, relationship with Jesus matured over time? Because history will tell us, scholars will tell us, that John was more than likely the youngest of all the disciples. So he has the most to learn of all the disciples. He has the furthest to go of all the disciples. He starts out thinking he knows, yeah, I'm 17. I know how life works, Jesus. Let me tell you a few things. And, like, and then we read later when he's 90 or when he's in his 70s and 80s writing letters and, to these churches, he's talking about love each other, have compassion for each other. Let's get along. Let's be unified. That's not the John that we saw 50, 60, 70 years before. He matured over time. So in your faith journey, let John be an inspiration to you. Let him be an encouragement to you. Because maybe you look at where you are, you're like, I don't feel super mature in my faith. That's okay. Just work on tomorrow maturing more than you are today. Make, make goals. It's the first of the year. Make goals. Hey, I'm going to mature in my faith in these ways. I'm going to set up these sort of uh, mile markers to see how I can get closer to Jesus. It ha- we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same journey. We all have room to mature just like John did. So don't get stuck, but mature. And also, don't give up on other people. Well, they just can't get it right, and they just won't learn. They won't mature. Just some of us mature slower than others. Like some of us might be late bloomers. That's okay. John took some time to get there, but he got there. Let's give people that room to grow and mature in their faith as well. And and then the third thing about John's relationship with Jesus is ultimately it was sacrificial was sacrificial. Again, go back to this thing. John had no intention of caring for Mary, right? That wasn't in his life plan. He wasn't like, yeah, when Jesus dies, I'm just going to take care of his mom. So he had, that wasn't why he was there, but that's what happened. And he did it. it was sacrificial. And then most of his life he gave to the work of the ministry. Uh, we know of at least seven churches that he pastored during his life, which will come into play in this book of Revelation. Pastored, started at least six of them and then, and then pastored another one that we know of. He gave his life sacrificially to the work of the ministry. And then when, you, when John is looking back, probably when he's writing, about to write Revelation, he's kind of by himself. We'll talk about that in a minute. He's, you know, as you do, looking back over his life, and he's thinking about friends that he grew up with and some of the other disciples. Guess what? They're all gone. And most, if not all of them, were gone from unnatural causes. They've been martyred. He looks at his best friends. Peter, crucified upside down for sharing his faith. The great leader of the church, killed, you know, like even Doubting Thomas, who, you know, I I won't believe until I see. He had great ministry in northern Africa, in that area of the world. He was martyred for his faith. His brother James was martyred for his faith. All of these dudes that he spent formidable years with, and he looks back, they're gone. They've been killed by the government for their faith they've been their heads have been chopped off they've been torn in pieces they've been speared to death they've been beaten to death they've been stoned to death they've been you know burnt on, on fire to death so he's he's kind of like I'm the only one and what happened really uh, with John is not only were all of his friends martyred but he was attempted he's an attempted martyr I guess you would say and he makes reference to this in Revelation chapter 1 verse 9 at the beginning of this uh, revelation he says this he introduces himself he says I John and your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus so in the late 80s AD the emperor Domitian had taken over and he was not very kind to Christians he was not this is this Jesus movement we're going to kill that thing right away And so John, being later in his life, is sort of a legend in his own right. He's pastored all these churches. He's done all these things. He's written a few letters already. And so he is basically captured by the Roman authorities. And what they do is they drop him in this huge vat of hot oil, try to burn him alive in hot oil. And apparently there's a huge, one, uh, one historian says there's sort of a crowd there watching this, like it's sort of a blood sport, like, yeah, down with John. And this dude's like in his 80s. Why are you going to do this to this sweet old man? Like, what did he ever do to you? It's because of his testimony about Jesus. So they drop him into this vat of hot boiling oil, and he doesn't die. In fact, one historian says he had no injuries at all. They pull him out, and you would think nothing had happened to him. That historian says that that event so affected the crowd, many of them put their faith in Christ that day from that experience. So then Domitian's like, well, you just can't, now I have to do something because now he's, he's like a miracle. I, so he exiles him to this island called Patmos. He's there by himself, supposedly to live out the end of his days, and he's there for a couple of years. And that's where the second thing, main idea today is that that's where he has a vision of Jesus. So while John is exiled off to himself to kind of wither away on this island, by himself he has a vision of Jesus. He meets an old friend one more time. So, what I want to do is read again, sort of the beginning of this to set the stage for where we're going to go the next few weeks. It's Revelation chapter 1. Uh, we'll pick it up at verse number 10. Uh, and so, here's how he sort of builds up uh, this account of his life, this vision of Jesus. Verse 10 of Revelation 1. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven, these the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are the seven churches that John had pastored over his life. So not they're not the only churches that exist in this part of the world. They're the ones that he invested in, that he started or ministered in. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our series, is going through the message to each of these seven churches. So John said, "When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man." It's a very common term. Um, for Hebrews or Israelites to talk about someone who is divine, the son of man. You see a lot in the book of Daniel and his prophecies. So here's his description of Jesus. You think about for a second how you picture Jesus to look. Just think about it for a second. And then let's read how John saw him. He was wearing a long robe, so far so good, check that box, with a gold sash across his chest. I always thought it was blue for some reason, but it's gold. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, which we've had enough of that outside, so we know what that looks like. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. That is not how I've ever thought Jesus looked ever except when i read revelation chapter one this is a sh- strange sort of thing and you it almost sounds sort of like what maybe john saw years earlier on that mount of transfiguration i i recognize him there but he looks different there's something different about, have you done something with your hair jesus it looks like you've aged a little bit and it wasn't age it's just it's just purity it's holiness So when it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. I would probably do the same thing. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. So John has this incredible vision of Jesus. Again, it, it strikes him so powerfully that he can't do anything but fall to the ground as if he were dead. And when you read in the Old Testament, whenever someone sees a vision of someone like the Son of Man or a, an angel who's a messenger, they have the same response. They're just in awe. They don't have the words to express anything. They, weak, their knees get weak, and they just fall flat as if they were dead. But remember, here's why we spent so much time focusing on the relationship between John and Jesus. Because what does Jesus do? He puts his hand on John and says, hey, it's your friend Jesus. He says, I'm the first and the last. I was dead and now I'm alive. Only Jesus can make that claim. That is one of the things that separates him from any other person in history. He's the only person who can say, I was dead and now I'm alive forever. Now, there are people that Jesus raised from the dead, but guess what? They died again. They're not alive forever and ever. So Jesus makes this claim that only he can make. I was dead, but now I'm alive. And this vision that John has includes a lot of things. So the next 21, 22 chapters, there's a lot of imagery that we read about, that we know about. There's a lot of figurative language. There's a lot of numbers. There's a lot of... You can, like, get so lost in the book of Revelation. But with all of the other things that are intertwined in this vision that John has... It begins with Jesus, and it ends with Jesus. And the focal point of all the craziness that happens in the pages of this book of Revelation, all are about Jesus. He's victorious. He's mighty. He's a warrior. He's not messing around anymore in Revelation. Like He's like, I put up with you people long enough. I put up with sin long enough. I put up with Satan long enough. We're done here. This is it. And so Jesus is Pictured in this way. I was dead, I'm alive forevermore. And so if he can do, if he can beat death, then he can kind of do anything, right? There's nothing that God can't do, there's nothing that Jesus can't do. So as we consider John's relationship with Jesus and his vision of Jesus, it brings to mind a question I want to ask us this morning. And that is: do you have a vision for your life? John had a vision. So the question is, do we have a vision? And you might say, well, that's not important, or I don't need one, or I, it's, you know, whatever. It's just whatever you want to, however you want to say it. But you need a vision for your life. You need direction for your life. You need purpose in your life. The question, though, is why? So what I want to do is look at one scripture. I'm going to look at three different translations and kind of bring them all together in kind of a 360-degree view here. It's Proverbs 28 or 29, 18. And it shows the importance of vision in your life. The proverb says, where there is no vision, the people perish. That's the King James Version. So what that's saying here is that a life without vision is not really life at all. It says we perish without vision. It's a life without hope, without direction. I'm lost. I'm scrambling. I feel hopeless. I feel like nothing's going to work out. I feel confused and frustrated all the time because I lack vision. Vision is key. Without it, we perish. The English Standard Version says where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. So we see similar language to what John experienced, prophetic vision. So a visionless life is purposeless. It's directionless. We cast off restraint. We have no guide. We have no guardrails. We have no sense of direction. We just kind of wander aimlessly and waste our existence, waste our life without prophetic vision. The NIV says where there is no revelation had to use that one because we're talking about the book of Revelation. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. So what it shows here is that it's not just you having a vision for the sake of you, but it's that your vision must be a revelation. It must be something greater than you, something bigger than you, something that means more than just your direction for your life. So you might think, I don't I don't that. I I don't need a vision for my life. And maybe, you know, I've got time to figure it out because I'm young or I'm kind of past my prime. So I'm just going to kind of wait my days out. And but it's like, no, 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 no. Whatever life you have left, however long that may be, you need vision for your life. So if you're young, don't waste your prime years by living directionless and visionless with cloudy vision. Well, I'm going to kind of feel my way through life and I'm not going to, you know, and there's always an aspect of that but we'll see how you can have clear vision, I would say perfect vision, how that's possible here in just a second. Don't waste your prime years with poor vision, with cloudy vision, or with no vision. Even if you're older, here's the thing, maximize the second half with clear vision. Recalibrate. So it's not just, oh, you know, I'm I'm at this point, and so this is what I'm to do, because that's what everybody does at this age. No, that may not be God's vision for the rest of your life. He may have something very specific, very different for you. And so you want to live with laser-like focus to make the whatever, however many years there are left count for something with renewed vision. Again, maybe your vision is blurry. You just need a slight correction. That's okay. Maybe you feel like life is a moving target, and I just <laughs> there's no way I'm going to hit the bullseye here. There's no, I'm going to miss the mark every time a moving target so maybe you just need a little bit of focus that's okay so with this question a vision for your life comes a second question that we're going to close with today and it seems like a simple question but it, it'll change everything the second question that includes so the first question is do you have a vision for your life but the second question is do you have a relationship with jesus these two things are directly connected they were for john Because John had a relationship before he had a revelation. That's why we set up the scene the way that we did. We established the close-knit, personal, growing, intimate relationship, the sacrificial relationship that John had with Jesus, because that's the only way he's going to get this revelation. The only way. Because Jesus knew he could trust John with this information. He knows this guy is not going to freak out. He's not going to flake out. So when Jesus tells him a few times, write this down, he trusts John enough to get it right. Because he says, the stuff I'm going to show him, he's not going to understand. It's going to seem strange, maybe scary, very weird. And he's not going to know. It's not, some of this stuff's not going to happen for a couple thousand years or more after he's gone. So he's, I need someone I can trust to get this right. And he trusted John with this information. He knew he was reliable. He knew he was trustworthy. He wasn't just going to trust this sensitive information with just anyone. It kind of goes back, if I can trust him with my mother, I can trust him with this revelation. And it's because he had that relationship. So here's how then vision and relationship connect in our lives. We're going to go back and read the second half of Proverbs 29, 18 and see how they're connected. So the King James, again, uh, it says that, let me look at it again. It says where there is no vision, the people perish. The second half of that verse says, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. The English Standard Version, again, says where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. The NIV, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. So there is a course of action here. There is an order to these things. There must be a relationship in order to experience the revelation. To have the clear vision that we're talking about and will talk about, to have the kind of clear vision for your life and your plans and your future and your relationships that we want That close-knit personal relationship is a must. It's the number one thing. It's the number one requirement. So the question may not then be, do you have a relationship with Jesus? But what kind of relationship do you have with Jesus? Can Jesus trust you with your vision like he trusted John with his vision? Because too many times, and I'm guilty of this just like anybody, I'll have my own vision my own idea of things that I want to accomplish or things that I want to do. And Jesus is like, you've you got to have my, my vision. It's got to be mine. It can't be your own. It's going to get you off course. It's going to not accomplish what I have planned for you. So I, what I find is the closer I am in relationship with Jesus, the clearer vision I have. One more scripture as we start to wrap it up here. That's Jeremiah 29, 11. We all know this. You probably have a coffee mug or a Bible cover or a bookmark with this verse on it. And here's the key. We're going to see this connection between vision and relationship. Verse 11, God says, I know the plans, plans, that's vision. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. God says, hey, there's a vision I want to share with you. There's a vision I have that I want you to experience. Then two verses later, we see that relationship is involved. God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's relationship. So I want the vision. I want the plans. I want the future. I want the hope. Well, it's necessitated on my relationship with the one who has the vision, who has the plan, who has the future, who gives hope. Vision and relationship are connected. In here, so here's the main the main thought I want to leave you with this morning. Your life vision will only be as good, and your purpose will only be as meaningful as your relationship with Jesus. Your vision will only be as good, and your purpose will only be as meaningful as your relationship with Jesus. Jesus, they are connected. So what that means is the closer you are to Jesus, the clearer vision you will have. The closer you are to Jesus, the more meaningful purpose your life will have. And so that doesn't mean you're going to have everything figured out. It's not a magic pill where I have all the answers to the universe no, there is still very much a faith component to that, but we're talking about clearer vision. We're talking about perfect as our imperfect nature can handle vision, and that comes with this close-knit relationship with Jesus. Now, there is this argument, though, well, I can, there's a lot of people that are successful who are far from God, and I would say you have to put air quotes around that word successful. Successful. Because you can have tons of money in the bank and be far from God, yes. You can build empires and have all this fame and things that you want. And I can have all these possessions. I can have pretty good relationships. I can have a great life apart from Jesus. But what you're going to find when you really dig deep into those people, they are still pretty miserable most of the time. You can read interview after interview of celebrity and and athlete and movie star who are far from God. You're going to find pretty quickly they're still searching. They've got it made. They're famous and wealthy and beautiful and whatever. And don't they have it all figured out? Why do they seem so miserable? Why do they struggle with addiction? Why did this person commit suicide? Didn't they have their whole life ahead of them? True vision, true meaningful purpose can only be found in a close-knit relationship with Jesus. Everything else fades. Everything else is temporary. Nothing else truly matters, truly gives that hope besides that relationship with Jesus. So here's the thing. We're going to do this every, every week during this series. We're going to look at a principle for the church, the kind of church we want to be, the kind of vision we want to have, and then the kind of vision that I want you to have for your life. So I want clear vision for our church. I want us to do the right things, the effective things, And I want meaningful purpose for our church. I want lives changed. I want our community to be stronger because of our presence in it. Which means we as a church must stay closely connected to Jesus. We have to follow his lead, hear his voice, go after his direction, follow his path. That's how we can accomplish those things as a church. And I want clear vision for your life. I want you to have certainty in your decisions. I want you to be fearless in what you do. I want you to have health in your relationships. I want your trajectory for the future to be onward and upward. I want you to have success in all that you do. I want that clear vision for you. I want meaningful purpose for your life. I want your life to count for something more than just these brief few years that you're here. I want others to be impacted by your life. I want you to live for more than just the here and now, but leave a legacy that lives way after you're not here anymore which means that then to, to do that, we have to stay close to Jesus, to grow and mature in our faith like John did, to go deeper with Jesus, to not be satisfied with just a surface-level status quo faith, kind of a name-by-name-only Christianity. You know, it's got to be something bigger than that. If I want clear vision and I want fulfilling purpose and direction in my life, it's got to be with this close-knit, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. And it can be done. And if we do it, if we attempt that like John did, we will have this revelation that will blow our minds. We will experience things in our lives and through our lives that will just wow us and everybody else around us. It'll just be like, how did God do that with them? How did he accomplish that purpose through that person? Well, it's because this relationship gives me clear purpose and it gives me this, this, uh, clear vision, and this meaningful purpose in my life, that God can do what I can't, and God can do, you know, what I could never accomplish, and I did it not because I did, but because he did through this vision and purpose.